Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's lovely to have you at, uh, back at St. Michael's for Burning Man. Well, it's uh, terrific to welcome uh, and introduce again to those who, who may not know Jonathan Fletcher. I've known Jonathan uh, ever since I was a student and have always valued his ministry, particularly his clarity as a Bible teacher. Uh, he's always challenging and thought-provoking, and so I'm delighted to, that he's here this morning. I've also valued his wisdom and judgment based on his extensive experience as former vicar of Emmanuel Wimbledon and now increasingly as a conference speaker. And so I know this morning will be a valuable and productive time together, and we're delighted to have you, Jonathan. May we pray for Jonathan just as we sit. Heavenly Father, we're all on different front lines that you have called us to serve you, and we pray that you will speak to us, that you will change us, mold us, form us, so that we become the men more the men that you would love us to be and we would love to be. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thank you, Charles, for that kind introduction. As you probably know, I'm actually um, standing in for someone else. Um, because I'm retired, I'm sort of fairly vacant and they can call on me at the last moment. And I'm grateful for the way Charles introduced me because there was one occasion when the build speaker couldn't turn up. So somebody stood in at the last moment and there was a lady chairperson who said something like this. You know, it's always very disappointing when the person you've been hoping to come hasn't been able to come. It's rather as if you have a stained glass window and one pane is broken and all you've been able to do is to put in a piece of cardboard. And then she turned to, to the speaker and said, uh, but you're not a piece of cardboard, you're a real pane. So, um, I want to quote, um, uh, recommend a couple of books. A number of you will have come across um, Nick, uh, Simon Gilbo's uh, Choose Life. There are just the most fantastic stories in this. Uh, and so, in case the rest of the morning is rather heavy, let me just read out November the 5th. An old widower lived alone in New Jersey. He wanted to plant his annual tomato garden on his allot allotment, but it was very difficult work for him in his decrepit state because of the hard ground. His only son, Vincent, used to help him, but was now incarcerated in New Jersey State Prison. The old man wrote a letter to his son, described his predicament. Dear Vincent, I'm feeling pretty sad because it looks like I won't be able to plant my tomato garden this year. I'm just getting too old to be digging up a garden plot. I know that if you were here, my troubles would be over. I know you'd be happy to dig the plot for me, like in the old days. Love, Papa. A few days later, he received the following note from his son. Dear Papa, don't dig up that garden. That's where the bodies are buried. Love, Vinny. At 4.30 the next day, the FBI agents and local police arrived and dug up the entire area without finding any bodies. <laughs> They apologized to the old man and left. That same day, the old man received another note from his son. Dear Papa, go ahead and plant the tomatoes now. That's the best I could do under the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Vinny. Um, it's terrific. I, I think um, uh, Nicky Gump has also done something like that through the year. Uh, 
Now, hard sayings of Jesus, uh, and it really couldn't be harder than we got this morning. So could you turn to Matthew 5? Uh, and I'm actually reading from the ESV, which I guess is pretty much the same. Matthew 5 and verse uh, 27. Matthew 5:27 Now you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart If your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell And if your right hand causes you to sin Cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Part of the, the Sermon on the Mount, and you know that the Sermon on the Mount is um, exposing bogus or false religion. It's actually addressed a lot to um, religious leaders, the Pharisees uh, and others. And in chapter 6 especially, you've got the, the marks of genuine, uh, genuine believer. And the genuine believer, according to Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, has a personal relationship with the Father. And you come again and again across the word Father in chapter 6. Uh, again and again, uh, verse 1, verse 4, verse 6, and so on and so on. So the, person, the genuine believer has a personal relationship with the Father. Secondly, the genuine believer has a secret place. Now, I don't know whether you remember being told as a youngster, go to your room and shut the door. Um, that was the only time I remember that being said, because I've misbehaved. But the Lord Jesus says that, uh, go to your room and shut the door, because there are things to be done in secret. Uh, the, the bogus person does things very ostentatiously, whether it's giving or praying and so on. Uh, and Jesus says, no, no, the, the genuine believer has a secret place, personal relationship with the Father, a secret place, and an eternal perspective. So he says of the, the Pharisees, you know, they have their reward in this life, uh, but to the genuine believer, go to your room, shut the door, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And it's having that eternal perspective. Now what we've got in uh, the second half of chapter 5 is the practical applications of being a genuine believer. And in the previous paragraph, it's, uh, this is verses 21, it's, uh, the reference is to uh, murder and anger. And then in our passage, it's uh, lust. So some preliminary uh, comments. First of all, we are all sexual beings and we are all sinners. So that when we hear of a, a brother or sister going astray in this area, like John Bradford, we say, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, this is something that we're all involved in. We can't begin pointing the finger at uh, certain things because we know that in this area, uh, well, come and tell me if you've never failed, but uh, by and large, we've, we're all sexual beings and we are all sinners. Uh, when it says in verse 28, um, committed adultery with her in his heart, uh, you, we mustn't be pharisaical and just limit this to uh, adultery. It, impl it includes all sexual sin whether it be fornication, which is technically, you know, when people are unmarried, uh, homosexual practice, um, incest, the lot. It's, all that is, is, is covered. And back in the 1960s, it was very interesting in the 20th century, what happened was that um, 
uh, Darwin, Marx and Freud sort of bowed God, bowed God out of things. So Darwin bowed him out of um, um, the universe. Marx bowed him out of history. Freud bowed God out of the inner man. But for a generation, people hung on to uh, Christian ethos, standards. And then come the 1960s, uh, the students were saying, well, why shouldn't we sleep around? Why, why shouldn't we take drugs and so on? Incidentally, this is what is happening in our schools now. I'm in touch recently with a couple of headmasters, and both of them said, we want to maintain a sort of Christian ethos, but you can't have a Christian ethos without Christian faith. So it just doesn't work. Uh, so what happened in the 60s is it began people sleeping around, and they called it free love. And Michael Green exposed that. You call it free love, but you ask yourself these questions. Is love selfish? Because you're going into it just for personal gratification. Does love rob? You're taking something away from somebody that should only be enjoyed by the married partner eventually. Does love hurt? Again and again, people are wounded by this so-called free love. Uh, does love stop? It's often just a one-night stand. So that was what was, what was happening. And uh, Michael Green, I think, exposed that. So we're all sexual beings and we're all sinners. The next thing to say by way of preliminary is that uh, sex is actually a God-given gift and beautiful in its right context. And the right context is heterosexual, uh, lifelong uh, marriage. And it's terrific, isn't it, that in the Bible you've got the Song of Songs, uh, Song of Solomon, where you have the uninhibited uh, delight of uh, lovers. Uh, and I take it that it's one of those things that you don't talk about outside the, sort of the, the marriage setup, but it should be something that um, uh, a married couple absolutely delight in. And it's very sad when, um, I've got the name down here, of someone whose wife isn't giving him, allowing him to have the sex which he, you know, any normal person wants. But in marriage, it is something uh, terrific. Now, what our passage is telling us, and it would apply to anger as well, is that the essence of sin is uh, in, in, in the heart. So just as um, uh, murder begins with anger, so physical adultery uh, begins with a thought. And that is sinful. It begins with the thought. And there is this difference, of course, between looking and lusting. Um, you know the old Chinese proverb, you can't stop the crows flying overhead, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And one possible translation of this, according to Don Carson, is that you look at a woman so as to get her to lust. On the man's side, it is the intention to commit adultery, but doing that makes her an adulteress as well. Now what the Lord Jesus is saying, and this of course comes from the Lord Jesus, is that although... Physical adultery um, is, of course, just like anger, uh, isn't quite as bad as actual murder, but it's sinful. So physical adultery is obviously slightly worse than the thought, but nonetheless, the thought is, is there. And heart adultery uh, is the result of eye adultery. Uh, it's the old thing that deeds of shame proceed from fantasies of shame. Uh, and Jesus is saying that those thoughts, when indulged, are sinful, very serious indeed. And you'll have been brought up with the old thing, sow a thought, reap an act, sow an act, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, 
so a character reap a destiny. That it begins with the thought, and that is what Jesus is saying here. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you think that's because I said that the, the, the deed is, um, is worse than the thought, yes, obviously, but the thought is very, very serious. And what Jesus goes on to say, verse 29, if your right eye that has been looking at this girl in this way causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And I've been asked just to say a word about that. You'll know that the word that uh, Jesus uses for hell uh, is uh, Gehenna. And Gehenna was the uh, rubbish dump outside uh, Jerusalem where the uh, refuse was taken out and burnt. It was the uh, city incinerator. And uh, Jesus is saying that uh, that is what will happen. Obviously, it's, it's picture language, but that is what will happen if you continue to commit adultery with your eyes. Uh, it's just worth saying how strong uh, Jesus is on, on hell. There's very little about hell in the Old Testament, very little about Paul, but a lot about from Jesus. And uh, Jim Packer, in this brilliant book, Knowing God, spells out some of the, the picture language. What does it mean to lose our souls? To answer this question, Jesus uses his own solemn imagery. Gehenna, the valley outside Jerusalem where the rubbish was burnt. The worm that dies not, an image, it seems, for the endless dissolution of the personality by a condemning conscience. Fire for the agonizing awareness of God's displeasure. Outer darkness for knowledge of the loss, not merely of God, but of all good and everything that made life seem worth living gnashing of teeth for self-condemnation and self-loathing. Now that's all from the lips of Jesus. So he is spelling it out as something very, very serious uh, indeed. Uh, You'll probably be aware that amongst Bible-believing Christians, uh, there are two slightly different views. There are those who think that uh, hell isn't permanent, there's annihilation, that people face an awful judgment uh, but, but hell isn't uh, permanent. That's known as annihilationism. And originally, the Church of England had 42 articles, not 39. And one of the articles uh, was on the permanence of hell. And they dropped that because they didn't think that that was a, a necessary thing for everybody to believe. Now, I personally am not an annihilationist. Uh, I do believe in the permanence of hell. But I want to respect those who, who do, and it may be people like um, John Stott, possibly, uh, Norman Anderson, John Wenham, and um, Earl Ellis. And Earl Ellis, uh, talking to me about this, said that um, he's an annihilationist because of his belief in the nature of God. He couldn't believe that God could have a place of uh, torture uh, in his universe throughout eternity. And the nature of man, and Earl Ellis would say that man was uh, essentially mortal, and we only become immortal uh, when we uh, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. However, I have to say that I think the natural reading of the Bible is that hell is uh, permanent. And the, the reverse is not least in, in the book of um, Revelation, that I think just can't be denied on this issue. 
So if you want to make a note, Revelation uh, chapter 14 and verse uh, 11 uh, says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its stone. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So I, I respect uh, the annihilationists. Uh, I'm certainly not going to break fellowship with them, but I think the natural understanding of the Bible is that hell is permanent and it is dreadful. And if you're back in our, our passage, what the Lord Jesus says is, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And again at the end of verse 30, better to lose one of your members than your whole body goes to hell. So what the Lord Jesus is saying is that the essence of sin is in the heart and the mind. So don't think that because you haven't actually committed physical adultery uh, that uh, everything's all right. Now it begins there, and there it is very, very serious, and the consequences are being thrown into hell. So either way, whether you're an, uh, uh, an annihilationist or like me, and I think the natural reading of Scripture, you believe in the, the permanence of hell, the language is very, very strong uh, indeed. And uh, if you think, I guess many people have avoided the act, I mean, that doesn't mean we're not in danger. Which leads on, therefore, to the urgency of action. And what the Lord Jesus is saying here, very simply, it's worth doing anything rather than go to hell. Worth plucking out your eye, worth cutting off your hand, rather than go to hell. Um, there are some uh, soldiers here, and I take it, uh, correct me afterwards, that the placing of sentries uh, a commonplace of military tactics. You must have sentries. And moral sentry duty is what Jesus is calling on here. It's equally indispensable. And therefore, it begins with moral sentries uh, of the eye. And that is why back in uh, Job, Job is able to say this again, if you're taking notes, Job uh, 31, uh, verse, uh, 30, sorry, 31, verse 7, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? A covenant with my eyes. Uh, Dick Lucas tells a story that when he was an undergraduate, um, a group of them were taken off uh, of a holiday in the south of France with Basil Atkins. And Basil Atkins was a wonderfully uh, keen senior member of the university. He was under librarian of the, uh, of the library in Cambridge. Um, but they were on this holiday in the, the south of France, and they passed a beach, and there was a girl there in a, in a bikini. And Basil said, don't look, Dick, don't look. So even there he was saying, look, guard your eyes. Um, this obviously refers, therefore, to uh, the films we watch and so on. And there's a subtlety. You see, one of my favorite films um, was The Sting, now, I, I, I love the sting, and there was nothing very, very particularly sort of uh, uh, arousing, but the hero ends up in bed with his girl. 
And the same thing happens in James Bond. There may not be anything particularly arousing at the time, but what creeps into your thinking, and this is thinking probably many youngsters, is that the hero ends up in bed with his girl. So although there may not be anything so specific that um, has an X rating, that's, that what creeps into the, 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 you know, the subconscious. And that, I think, is, of course, is what is happening to, to many of our, our, our youngsters, the feeling that you haven't uh, slept with a girl, that there's something missing, because this is what the real hero does. Now, not only films, this comes on to the, the huge issue of the, the Internet. Now, I'm a Luddite, um, out of sheer laziness, so I haven't got the Internet or email or anything like that. Um, but it is obviously a, a real battle for many people. And I remember vividly uh, a, a retired pastor called, called John uh, Robb coming to speak to us when I was a curate in, in Cambridge. And he was blind. And he said, I'm so glad I'm blind because God has used me much more since I became blind than ever before. And when I hear of the things that young people are being able to watch these days, I'm grateful that I can't see them. Now, you think that's pretty radical, but in a sense, he's right. We've just got to avoid those things. And that is why you've got things like, uh, I gather, uh, covenant eyes. I was with a group of um, students, and this whole subject uh, came up. And somebody, one of them said, um, does it cost anything to have covenant eyes, uh, to which checks up on what you watch on the Internet? And someone, one of the others said, uh, yes. But if that's the price for purity, it's a price worth paying. And that, of course, is what the Lord Jesus is saying here. Do anything rather than, than fall into that sort of sin. Um, a friend of mine makes the point of having no internet at home. He's got one at work, which he has to use there, where other people can see it, but nothing in his home. And therefore, it's, it's taking strong strategic action so that one doesn't actually begin seeing, lusting, as the Lord Jesus warns in this passage. Another thing that, that could help uh, would be some form of accountability, which might mean making oneself um, vulnerable. And uh, where there are people in prayer duets or prayer triplets, um, uh, an honesty in that area can be very useful. But it does mean making oneself vulnerable. I had a very good friend who was at Emmanuel, and I thought we had tremendous um, openness between us but he never told me that his battle actually was um, gambling. So I never was able to ask him about that. The result is that he's uh, bankrupt, and that's uh, finished his marriage. But if he had been able to say, look, could you pray for me? Uh, this is a battle I've had. It, it might have helped. But it does mean making oneself uh, vulnerable. Uh, you know, another prayer partner once rang me up and said, look, I'm at work. I can't take my eyes off the secretary. She's gorgeous. Please pray for me. And to be in a sort of relationship like that where one can call on someone for help, prayer help. And again, in a prayer triplet, um, I think uh, going back a number of years, uh, one of the, the three of us was traveling quite a bit. So we said to him, look, you've got to be especially careful when you're traveling uh, on a business trip, uh, your hotel room and uh, the unhelpful things are available on, the, um, uh, on the, 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 your bedroom uh, television. And he knew that we would ask him about that when he came back from his, uh, his trip. And that in itself helped him. So some form of accountability uh, is often very helpful and drastic action because it is very, very serious. Now, I've just put down here four names. 
of people whose marriages are over because of uh, internet porn. Um, uh, one, because he kept on asking his wife to do things that he'd seen uh, in, in porn and she just couldn't take it any longer. Uh, another, because um, they'd got covenant eyes and then he did something to his computer which meant that um, that was switched off and then she discovered afterwards that he'd done that in order to watch some uh, internet porn uh, which led to some masturbation and so on and that was the final straw and she's asking for a divorce and I think of two others uh, one's a clergyman and uh, it was internet porn that led to the breakdown of his marriage so what the Lord Jesus is saying is drastic action don't think that just because you haven't committed the act you're okay it begins with the thoughts now the final word is very important uh, Rico Tice says you should never talk about sex without talking about forgiveness. Uh, and that, of course, is at the heart of the gospel. It may well be that if we have sinned badly in this area, uh, we may have to face consequences. If we've fathered a, a child out of wedlock, well, then we have to look after that child. If we've sexually abused somebody, we, we may go to prison. But in God's sight, we can be forgiven. And there is this uh, glorious uh, promise in Isaiah 65 and elsewhere that these things will be uh, dealt with uh, by God and uh, we can be forgiven. So Isaiah 65 verse um, 17 says, uh, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So that the wonder of the gospel is that we can, our sins can be forgiven, forgotten, forever. Uh, you'll be familiar with the, the, the four places that God has put our sins. He's put our sins as far as the east is from the west, which is so much better than the north to the south, because that's finite. You go from the north pole to the south pole, you get there. If you try going from the east to the west, you never get there. So far as he put our sins uh, from us. Then we're also told that he's put our sins at the bottom of the sea. That's in Micah. And some wag has said has then put up a notice which says no fishing. So other people can't get at them. And then in Isaiah again, he said, uh, we read that he's put our sins behind his back. So when I go to heaven, uh, I'll be tempted to say, Father, it's great there, but I, I, I'm so sorry for those sins that I committed after I became a Christian. And he'll say, what sins? What sins? He's put them behind his back. They're forgiven, forgotten, forever. As far as the east is from the west, the bottom of the sea, behind his back, and you know the fourth place he put our sins, on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus was identified as an adulterer and as a fornicator, as a pedophile, and he took the curse uh, that we deserved, and our sins were dealt with there. So there is this terrific offer of forgiveness because there may well be things that we've thought or watched and possibly done uh, which uh, fill us with a tremendous sense of uh, shame, rightly. But in God's sight, when we've come to him, they are forgiven, forgotten, forever. So this hard saying of uh, Jesus, uh, the essence of sin 
lies in the eye and the heart. And the same true applies to uh, murder and anger, but it applies, applies to adultery as well, and what we watch, and therefore what we think about. And the consequences are very, very serious indeed. Uh, it may be that we've hurt somebody badly in this way. Uh, it may be that uh, a marriage has been uh, destroyed. It may be, as a friend of mine told me, that he'd, he had been watching things on the internet. And he, he, he told his wife. And I said, was that a wise thing to do? And he, he said uh, she was very, very upset, very upset that I'd had to do that. And her, the very fact that she was so upset has saved me from doing it again. Just interesting. But it does do tremendous damage. But worst of all, there is the danger of hell. It says that very, very strongly indeed. Gehenna, the rubbish dump, the incinerator outside the city. And therefore, the urgency of action. And once again, where we began, uh, we're all sexual beings and we're all sinners so that we're in this uh, together. Uh, in this area, I'd want to say, as John Stott used to say, uh, if you knew the blackness of my heart, you would spit in my face. We're in this together. And therefore, drastic action, uh, but with the wonder of the, the, the offer of total forgiveness. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. So it's a hard saying of Jesus but it's there to protect us because he's invented this wonderful thing of marriage, uh, the only right place for, uh, for physical sex, and he doesn't want that spoilt in any way. I remember feeling, you know, that was the one area where I found God's um, commandments um, frustrating. You know, he's made me a sexual being. You know, why do I have to wait till marriage? Or in my case, you know, why can't I ever express this? Uh, and the answer is that he's got my best interests at heart. He doesn't want things uh, spoiled, that there will be a battle. So we're all in this together. We take Jesus' words very seriously, and we take drastic action. Do we have any uh, questions we'd like to ask? Yes. Just before a question, um, can I just have one more quote? Um, I said at the start that one of the marks of a um, genuine believer is... Uh, a, a relationship with God the Father. And this is um, Jim Packer. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And recognizing that will be one of the spurs to keep the teaching of the Lord Jesus and to, to fight on this particular issue. Somebody had, was waving a paw. Jonathan, thank you very much. I wasn't familiar with the concept of annihilationism. And it seems really pretty close to universalism. I mean, logically, only it's one step behind that, which can't be right from a biblical perspective, surely. Um, I think the uh, annihilationists would say um, there is a fearful judgment, and you want to save people from that. And then they'd go on to say that um, 
it's not like universalism because uh, there's either annihilation, which everything is wiped up, which means your whole of your life has been absolutely wasted, or there's the glory of heaven. So they're certainly not saying that people there's a chance of going to heaven. Um, so they're not universalists. But I think the natural reading of Scripture is, is very much on the, the permanence and the awfulness. Uh, dear D.L. Moody said, you should never talk about hell except with tears in your eyes. And it's very serious indeed. And dear old General Booth, somebody wrote to him saying, one of his Salvation Army officers saying, look, I'm having a terrible battle. I, I'm just making no progress. And General Booth sort of wired back, try tears. So I think the more we are aware of the horrors of hell, that will drive us out in um, evangelism and I think also uh, taking God to our own lives. But no, I believe in the permanence of hell, but I'm not going to break fellowship with, with others. But thank you for the question. Other questions? Yeah. Based on your um, pastoral experience, do you think that a husband should always tell his wife when he's, I don't know, looked at internet pornography um, or something? Or do you think it's a matter for the case by case? My own thinking um, is that uh, it may not be helpful. may not be helpful. Um, uh, I'm, because I'm a bachelor, I'm sort of treading in sort of areas I don't understand. But um, it may be that um, when people get married, they may need to say things they've done in the past. But um, I think probably, probably, if someone's battling in this area, that is where a prayer triplet may be more helpful uh, rather than wounding the wife. But recognize that if the wife knew that, it would be very, very hurtful and painful. But I don't, you know, when my friend told me he'd done this, um, I, th- I, th- I was slightly surprised. And I said, was that wise? And he said, well, she was very hurt, but that has actually been an incentive. But I wouldn't recommend that. But, you know, somebody here might say that is the right thing to do. Yeah. And therefore, don't do anything that, um, you know, hurts your wife, your marriage. Yeah. Excellent time for one more, perhaps. Um, Hello. Um, So I was wondering, uh, so um, because we're Christians, uh, so we're forgiven of our sins, uh, but yet at the same time, this sort of danger of hell is described to us. Um, I was kind of wondering how, how, and particularly this danger of hell, um, if we sort of, uh, as a result of uh, um, ultimately of of sins like this one, how's that, what's the relationship between our sort of being forgiven and our kind of of danger of hell that we have to be um, wary of? I think I've understood. Um, uh, there is this tremendous danger, isn't there, of saying, oh, I'm forgiven, and therefore um, uh, I can do this, and I'll say sorry, and everything will be all right, uh, because I've been forgiven. And the Bible never allows us to do that. Yes, uh, I've been forgiven, and that is something that cannot be taken away. And I think the way I would try to resolve that very real question would be to go to something like Psalm 51, where David, in a sense, uh, repents of his uh, adultery and says, 
restore unto me the joy of my salvation. So you lose the joy of it all. I don't think this uh, verse, in the light of the rest of the teaching of Scripture, means that you can lose your salvation if you're a believer. I think Jesus is more likely to be saying, look, if you're a believer, don't think that this is uh, something light and you can sort of get away with. Um, but forgiveness, you know, I became a Christian was a 12-year-old, and God didn't have me on, on approval. He knew that I would muck up in all sorts of ways. Uh, but uh, that was covered. But every time I do sin, um, I lose the joy of my salvation. So your question is a very good one. Don't think that, oh, I'm saved, and therefore I can behave as I like. Uh, there are very serious consequences. So it's not a totally neat answer to your question, but the question was very good. Anyone else wants to add to that? Jonathan, just one question comes to mind. Um, thank you for underlining at the end the, the importance of forgiveness uh, when looking at this area. What would be your pastoral wisdom for either ourselves or uh, encouraging counselling others um, in helping them deal with the past if they feel tremendous guilt or shame? Um, how we counsel them, them or ourselves out of that and yet don't make light of the sin, um, if that makes sense. Yes, thank you. It, it follows on from the first question. I would take them to Psalm 51, where uh, David says, in effect, um, what I did was wrong. So get them to see that, uh, you know, it wasn't just a little thing, it was wrong. Let them see that it was against God, against thee, the only have I sinned. Because it wasn't just with Bathsheba that uh, it was against God. Um, uh, and then uh, get them to see that that is what we're naturally like. In sin did my mother conceive me. It wasn't a temporary lapse or a momentary aberration. When I indulged those uh, thoughts or looked at that thing on the internet, I was revealing what I'm really like. Uh, and therefore uh, cleanse me. Uh, fr from that, that, that uh, sense of uh, filth. Um, so th I would actually tell them very strongly that they can be forgiven if I thought they were repentant. And then we would sort of begin talking about things that would help. Um, just interesting, Rico Tice uh, had a godson, who's actually my great-nephew, and for his 13th birthday gave him that book, is it by Tim Chester, on the, you know, how to deal with uh, porn. And the rest of the family were slightly surprised that actually 13-year-olds on their phones can begin seeing all this. So that the battle begins very, very early. And I've not actually read that book, but uh, that may be something that's helpful. But I, I want to say to the repentant person, forgiveness, forgiveness, because that is the message of the gospel. But not treating sin lightly. Cut your hand off, pluck your eye out. So getting that balance. Thank you, Jonathan, um, so much. Why don't we, uh, for the time that remains, gents, let's turn in our groups, uh, reflect on uh, what we've heard this morning, uh, seek to uh, apply and it to one another uh, with each other, encourage each other and pray for each other, and we'll finish at eight. If you want to be drawing your prayers to a close, gents, could we perhaps just show our appreciation for Jonathan coming this morning, um, stepping in.
real pain. <laughs> joking. Um, two weeks' time, we've got Jago Wynn looking at You Cannot Serve Two Masters, looking at our relationship with our finances and money, another um, huge topic <laughs> for us. And then the week directly following that, so uh, we usually have a two-week gap. Uh, we only have a one-week gap um, following Jago in two weeks' time. So Jago's on the 3rd of December, and then John Ash, curate here, is speaking on the 10th of December. And uh, he is looking at uh, popularity paranoia and the cost of following Jesus and what it means for each of us. So two more dates uh, in this term and already an exciting term coming together uh, next term. So great to see you, gents. Stay strong, stay pure. Let's encourage each other. Have a great day.